Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Chris Smith and Diana O'Carroll will be bringing us the latest in science news. Coming up, how a new test can literally sniff out degradation in old paper. And now that they know that the smell test works on these 72 samples, they can develop this method to be completely non-invasive. And that's useful for any old documents library because currently you have to cut a small sample from a document in order to test how it's faring. How stars with planets seem to lack lithium. What they think is going on is that the presence of planets around the star in some way stirs up the surface of the star and this pulls the lithium off the surface deeper into the star. And the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. New research shows an unexpected result. I think until we started making some of these observations, most glaciologists and climate scientists felt that the ice sheets um, responded very, very slowly and, and not very dramatically to climate change. What we're seeing in Greenland is completely the converse, and I think it surprised a lot of scientists. Plus, we look back to this week in science history and the death of Nobel laureate Daniel Nathans, who pioneered work on restriction enzymes, now an essential part of any microbiologist's genetic toolkit. That's all on the way. There's the old saying, never judge a book by its cover, and indeed you shouldn't. But now chemists are saying you should judge them by their smell instead. Publishing in the journal Analytical Chemistry, the authors have come up with a test that can measure how fast an old book is degrading, according to its odour. And this new sniff test could be really valuable to museums and document libraries because it has the potential to be completely non-invasive. This is when books get old, they get musty, is that what you mean? Yeah, you get these um, sort of funny smells, they might be like vanilla or grass-like, um, but I'm sure most of us will, will know them, having walked into a library. But we actually did a question of the week about this a year and a half ago with one of the authors on the paper, and that was Jana Kalar, together with colleagues from the University, um, University College London and Slovenia, and they've isolated 15 main VOCs, and these are volatile organic compounds, which the paper releases. Now, we each of these volatile organic compounds are omitted from the paper as a result of the original makeup of the paper in the document, the glues used to bind it, and the ink used for the print. So the researchers looked at 72 papers from the 19th and 20th centuries to find out which contained the most fragile components. And they already knew these included rosin, which is pine tar, and wood fibre. And they're related to increased levels of acid, like acetic acid, in the paper as it ages. And these acids can eat away at the paper itself. So they collected and analysed the volatile organic compounds using a combination of gas chromatography and mass spectrometry. And then to test their own test or find out which of these compounds were the ones that the library should be looking out for, they took a few small samples of the paper itself to look at its composition. So combining the results, they got these 15 VOCs and they, they gave an indication as to the condition of the paper and how much acid or even peroxide, i.e. bleach, it's producing as it decays. And they've dubbed the smell test material degradomics. And now that they know that the smell test works on these 72 samples, they can develop this method to be completely non-invasive. And that's useful for any old documents library because currently you have to cut a small sample from a document in order to test how it's faring. So that's ingenious. So you go to old books, you measure the smells that are coming off of them, you know roughly how degraded that book is, and so you can get a sort of smell fingerprint, which is an indicator of the level of decay, 
and that enables you to identify which books should be prioritised for treatment. But what can you do about a book that is in an advanced state of decay? Well, it's usually all about moderating the atmosphere in which it's kept in. So humidity, um, how, how dry or, or not to dry the air is. Um, sometimes you can apply chemical treatments, but most libraries uh, don't have the money or resources to do that. Because I thought Jana, who you mentioned in that, was developing some kind of spray or chemical that you could immerse the book in and it would neutralise some of those acids and therefore it was sort of safer to keep it on the shelf for longer. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a a similar thing to uh, the way the Mary Rose is preserved, actually, because the Mary Rose suffers from a a similar problem of developing acids and various metals um, and they have to, to spray that regularly. Thank you, Diana. So, uh, as you say, never judge a book by its cover. Now, from libraries to way out into space, which is the question of lithium. Now, a scientific mystery, which goes back about 60 years, has been solved partially. I say partially, and you'll find out why in a second. Because when scientists began looking at distant stars, what they found was that there was something not quite right. If you look at what came out of the Big Bang when the universe was created, there were large amounts of hydrogen, the simplest element we know of, uh, smaller amounts of helium, the next smallest element, and then traces of lithium, atomic number three. Now, given that those things were made by the Big Bang, you should see roughly equivalent amounts of hydrogen, helium and lithium pretty much distributed all over the universe. So what people couldn't understand is when they looked at some stars, why was it that some of those stars had what we would call a normal amount of lithium, whereas other stars, equivalently old and of equivalent sizes, didn't seem to have any, or at least less than 1% of the amount that the other ones did. So where has that lithium gone? Well, a group of researchers in Europe, this is uh, Garrick Israelian and his colleagues, have got a paper in the journal Nature this week where they think they've managed to solve this. What they did was a big survey, 500 stars, including Rod Stewart and Tina Turner. No, I'm just kidding. And they compared those stars, 70 of which had planets orbiting them, and they looked at the levels of lithium in them. And what they found, very interesting, when they arranged them in order of size and age and so on, so they were comparing like with like, those which had planets around them had no or very low levels of lithium visible in the starlight. But those that didn't have planets, so just solitary stars, had normal levels of lithium. So were those ones battery-powered? Uh, no, why, why was that? Well, uh, a quote from the researchers themselves, they don't actually know. <laughs> but what they say is it's now up to the theoreticians to figure out exactly how this happens. But they've got a theory. What they think is going on is that the presence of planets around the star in some way stirs up the surface of the star, and this pulls the lithium off the surface deeper into the star. And why that's significant is that the surface of the star, believe it or not, is not actually that hot. It's about five or 6,000 degrees, which is insufficiently hot to burn off lithium. But the interior of the star, which might be uh, millions of degrees, 15 million plus degrees, in there, it is hot enough. So if you get the lithium stirred up off the surface and going inside the star, it can then burn off. And planets, they think, perhaps in some way stir up the surface and make that happen. Why is it useful to know this? Well, apart from answering a a very age-old mystery of planetary and cosmic science, what it also does is give us a clever way to find planets around distant stars, because up until now people have had to do painstaking and excruciating studies to look for distant stars wobbling a little bit or the light dipping a little bit as a planet goes between your telescope and the star you're looking at. 
this technique means that you can look at the light coming from the star, you can tell, because lithium has a certain signature written into that spectrum, whether there's lithium there or not, and if a star has no lithium, like our own sun, that's a good director that perhaps there are some planets orbiting it, so you should focus your attention there, not waste your time looking at uh, stars that have loads of lithium, because they probably don't have any planets. Great, so uh, I won't be saying goodbye to my lithium batteries anymore, they're actually uh, got a nice useful element in them. But anyway, um, I'm sure most of you out there will have run out of disk space on a computer at some point and had to overwrite a few files. And it looks like the short-term memory of animals isn't that far removed. Now, publishing in the journal Cell, neuroscientists have reported that in mice and rats, newly formed neurons seem to be deleting older connections. And Keoro Inokuchi and colleagues from the University of Tayama think that short-term memory is updated by new neurons emerging in the hippocampus area of the brain, which is sort of in the middle, bottom bit. Uh, and these new neurons essentially overwrite the connections between the old ones. And the hippocampus is really special because it's one of the only places in the brain that we know can actually make new neurons. And the researchers looked at this by irradiating rats' brains, which considerably slows down the formation of new neurons in the hippocampus. And they placed rats in a chamber which would give their feet an electrical shock. Uh, not very nice, but once the rats had this experience in their short-term memories, the researchers applied a bit of X-ray radiation to the hippocampus, and afterwards the rats continued to use the hippocampus to recall that fear memory. And in those rats without X-ray treatment, the fear memories were eventually displaced to elsewhere in the brain. Now, the researchers knew this memory displacement was occurring because they'd also looked at mice which were born without the ability to make new hippocampal neurons. And mice who received an infusion to block any neuron activity in the hippocampus experienced the same thing. So that way they could tell which animal was depending on its hippocampus for memory and which wasn't. And again, mice which couldn't produce new hippocampal neurons seemed to rely on their old short-term memories when they were placed in the shock chamber. Um, and the researchers said that this is because there were no new neurons to displace the old ones and essentially push them into the long-term storage, which is somewhere else in the brain. So the conclusion is that if you can't make new neurons, then you could have problems because the brain's short-term memory is literally full. So perhaps this could lead to a better understanding of memory-related diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's. It's very interesting because antidepressants also have the effect of increasing the survival of those new neurons being born in the hippocampus. And Perry Bartlett, who's a researcher in Australia, published some research a few years ago now showing that people, when they take Prozac, increase the proportion of those newborn cells that turn into neurons and also survive as neurons. And one of the symptoms of depression is poor memory. And one wonders, therefore, whether um, it's partly due to sleep disturbance and mood disturbance, but also because people don't keep enough of these nerve cells to erode those memories they want to displace or the memories they want to replace with fresh ones. That's very interesting. I wonder if it's the same effect with marijuana as well. Why do you say that? Well, because um, marijuana has also been related to loss of short-term memory and people who are using it quite a lot. You haven't had that experience? <laughs> no, no, no. Just no, no, no. I'm just joking. Right, well, also in the news this week, uh, we've got some worrying news emerging from Greenland because scientists have shown that the ice there is melting and the time that it's doing that at, the rate at which it's melting at, is increasing. So the melt rate is accelerating. But how do we actually quantify how fast ice is melting from a landmass with any accuracy? Well, there's a paper in the Journal of Science this week. It's by Bristol University scientist Professor Jonathan Bamber and his colleagues, and it might be able to help us. And Jonathan's with us now to tell us a bit more. Hello, Jonathan. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So tell us, first of all, what the issue is with Greenland. 
Greenland's the biggest ice mass in the Northern Hemisphere. It's got enough ice in it to, if it, if it melted, you took away the whole ice sheet, it would raise global sea level by about seven metres. To put so, that into perspective then, um, we, we would be looking at the, the Pennines would be about the only bit of Britain left above water, wouldn't they? Uh, no, no, not it's not quite that that bad, but you can say bye-bye to the Houses of Parliament, which might be a good thing, but, um, you know, I, I couldn't comment on that. But seven metres, that's what, I don't know, about 25 feet, so... I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen tomorrow or anything like that, but there is a huge potential for sea level rise in the Greenland ice sheet. I think the other thing about big big ice masses like Greenland and Antarctica is that once you set them on a certain course, um, they're like the sort of super tankers of the climate world. Once you, you, you've pointed them in a certain direction, it's very, very difficult to turn them into a, you know, another way. How do you quantify how much weight ice water is going from Greenland? Well, there, there's a variety of techniques, um, uh, but what, what's, what, what a lot of scientists have been very excited about in about the last five, six years is a satellite mission called GRACE, which stands for the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. It doesn't matter what the acronym is, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's an absolutely amazing mission. It's actually two satellites, and it, it's able to measure very, very accurately small changes in the gravity field of the Earth. Um, and so if an ice sheet like Greenland um, loses mass or, or gains mass for that matter, it can actually measure those variations and it does it on a roughly monthly time scale. And what has this told you? So a number of scientists have, have looked at this problem with GRACE and, and with other satellite data as well. Um, and the problem has been with all the, the previously published results is that there's been a, 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 a lot of variability in the numbers. In fact, they, the numbers have differed from each other by about a factor two you know some have been double others um but what what we what we've done is actually compared uh, two different approaches using grace and an entirely independent approach for measuring the mass balance of the the, the mass loss of the ice sheet and they they tie up pretty well so it gives us a lot of confidence in our results and we think that we've we've sorted out a lot of the issues that have existed with earlier observations and um, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's a pretty disturbing picture. Um, in the early 90s, the ice sheet looked like it was relatively close to balance, maybe losing um, uh, it's 50 gigatons of ice. A gigaton is one billion tons. Um, and in the last few years, that rate has increased to something like 273 gigatons a year. And that's, that's a lot of ice. That's, um, well, 273 gigatons, that's a cubic kilometre per gigaton. So that's 273 cubic kilometres. So, I mean, just to kind of try and... It's very hard with numbers that big to, to really know what you're talking about here, but one gigaton is about the volume of Lake Windermere. So we're talking about 273 Lake Windermere. Per year. Per year. But I, I think the other interesting statistic I, I like is that four gigatons is enough water to supply the entire domestic water supply of the UK. So 273 is pretty much the water supply of the whole planet. And that's just melting every year. Has that changed, though? Because one of the points you make in your paper is that there appears to be an acceleration going on. This would, one would presume, be secondary to global climate change. So what's the pattern of that acceleration? Um, we've seen... Uh, so so um, GRACE only only went up in 2002, and, so, and, and the reliable measurements are only about six years of, of observation. So we don't have a very long record from GRACE. But just in that time 
we have seen the rate of increase. We've seen it, I don't know, it's increased by about 2.5 times. So I think the mean for the period for 2003 to 2008 is about 180. But the last two years, it's gone up to something like 270 gigatons a year. So that's a big acceleration in mass loss. So it's almost like Greenland's a sort of barometer of what's happening potentially in other bits of the world, isn't it? Well, that's one of the interesting things, because I think until we started making some of these observations, most glaciologists and climate scientists felt that the ice sheets um, responded very, very slowly and um, not very dramatically to climate change. What we're seeing in Greenland is completely the converse, and I think it surprised a lot of scientists. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I wish that we could end on a happier note, but I guess I only can congratulate you on your research and not on the findings. Thank you very much, Jonathan. OK, nice to talk to you. That's Professor Jonathan Bamber, and uh, he's a researcher at the University of Bristol. He's got a paper in the Journal of Science this week with uh, his explanation as to exactly what's going on in Greenland with respect to loss of water because of melting ice. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. And now we join Sarah Castor-Perry for a look back in time to this week in science history. This week in science history saw in 1999 the death of Daniel Nathans, microbiologist and co-winner of the 1978 Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology for his work on restriction enzymes, essential tools in the world of genetics. Born in Wilmington, Delaware in 1928 to Jewish immigrant parents, Nathans grew up in a supportive household and followed his sisters and brothers to the University of Delaware, where he studied chemistry, philosophy and literature. Coming to the end of his degree, he chose to study medicine and gained his MD degree in 1954. After a time spent working in clinical medicine, Nathans knew his heart lay in medical research rather than in treating patients. The two other winners of the Nobel Prize, Werner Arber and Hamilton Smith, discovered restriction enzymes in the 1960s, but it was Nathans who realised their potential for use in genetics. The enzymes, also known as restriction endonucleases, were first isolated from bacteria, where they help to protect the bacteria from infection with viruses called phages. They do this by chopping up the virus's DNA, while another enzyme protected the bacteria's own DNA. So how do restriction enzymes work? Well, they scan along a DNA molecule until they reach a particular sequence of the bases A, T, G and C. For example, the enzyme ECOR1 recognises G, A, A, T, T, C and TAC1 recognises TCGA. When it finds this sequence, the enzyme cuts the chemical bonds in the backbone of each strand of the double helix. They either cut or cleave the DNA strands straight across, known as a blunt end, or in places a few bases apart on each strand, leaving overhanging bases on each strand, known as sticky ends. The enzymes useful to genetics are the sticky end types, but more on that in a bit. Nathans was working at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore in 1969 when he received a letter from Hamilton Smith detailing his discovery of the restriction enzyme in the bacteria Haemophilus influenzae. Nathans used this enzyme to cleave the DNA of the simian virus SV40 into 11 specific fragments. This and later work, where the virus's DNA was cleaved in different places using different enzymes, showed that the base sequence of a whole genome could be determined using restriction enzymes. 
Cutting DNA using restriction enzymes, known as a restriction digest, is the first step in many current genetic techniques. DNA fingerprinting in crime and paternity cases, RFLP analysis to detect genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis, and for genetic recombination. This last technique may not ring any bells, but it will have saved your life if you suffer from diabetes. It's how scientists can produce human insulin by inserting the insulin gene into bacteria and making them produce it in bulk. Nathan's showed that the sticky ends of the DNA left by some of the enzymes were sticky for any corresponding sticky end, whether it had come from the original DNA or not, making joining human and bacterial DNA together possible. As long as the bacterial DNA was cut with the same enzyme used to cut out the human gene, the sticky ends would match and the gene could be inserted. Nathan's continued to work at Johns Hopkins until his death, becoming president of the university in 1994. He was awarded the National Medal of Science by President Clinton in 1993 and Johns Hopkins named it Institute of Genetic Medicine after him and Victor McCusick in 1999 after his death. In his autobiography on acceptance of the Nobel Prize, Nathan's paid tribute to his interesting and cordial colleagues and to his family, saying he felt struck by the good fortune that had come his way in his life. Many genetic techniques that we now take for granted would not have been possible without the work of the three Nobel winners, but it was Daniel Nathans's vision that helped him realise the full and far-reaching potential of restriction enzymes. That was Sarah Custer Perry looking back on the life of Nobel laureate Daniel Nathans, who passed away this week in science history. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler, and featured Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll, Sarah Custer Perry, and our guest, Professor Jonathan Bamber from Bristol University. You can read about all of these stories and more on our website at thenakedscientist.com, where you can also find all of our other podcasts. We'll be back with another roundup of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.